welcome to the At Ramsey Heights podcast, your source for all of our audio messages at Ramsey Heights Baptist Church in Batesville, Arkansas. This is Pastor Brian Coates, and I hope this encouragement from God's Word connects with you and helps guide you through your next steps on your journey with God. Enjoy today's message. Well, if you've got your Bibles with you this morning, we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. Uh, Ten years ago at the college I went to at Lyon College, the awesome college that we have some visitors from this morning, Lyon College has this thing called a Nichols trip. And, and I was afforded the opportunity for just about the price of $700 to get to go and travel to Turkey. Now, Turkey is way far away. So what we ended up doing is we had to fly to Newark, New Jersey, right outside of New York City. And then we sat on a plane for 20 hours all the way across the ocean, across all of Europe to get to Istanbul, Turkey. Now, 20 hours on a plane is not my most favorite thing to do. You put my wife in a car on a plane, she can fall asleep in an hour. I have a brother who could probably sleep in the middle of most medieval tortures. Not me. If I'm going to sleep, I need my bed, my three pillows, and my blankie. That is the only way that I'm going to go to sleep. So I wasn't able to sleep on this whole entire trip. When we got there, we expressed to our professors, like, we're tired, we want to rest. And I said, okay, everybody go get a shower, get clean up, get some clothes on, and we're going to meet back down at the lobby of our hotel at 4.30, and we're going to start the tour of all the things that we can see here. Now, I did all of that. I got a shower, and I got dressed, and I just dressed like like me. Well, not like this. This is Sunday me. I dressed like regular me, and I went downstairs, and, and one of the guys who I was going with uh, was a soccer player, and he just looked at me as I walked down the stairs and goes, dude, you're going to stand out like a sore thumb. What's wrong with me? I don't understand. And the reason he said that is I'm walking around Istanbul, Turkey, cowboy boots, blue jeans, a pearl snap button-up shirt, and a camouflage razorback hat. Now, I don't know if you know this. That's, that's normal attire around Batesville. That's not normal attire in Istanbul. Uh, Turkey is a predominantly Muslim country, and Istanbul is basically the equivalent of their New York. I didn't fit in there, and I know I didn't fit in because I stood out to everybody. It's not like it is here. Over there, salesmen on the streets of foreign countries, they come and they try to force you to buy things. You know those annoying people that like at the mall and they're always like, here, let me shine your shoes. And that's what everybody does there. The host at a restaurant would walk out to you if they noticed you and they'd shove the menu in your face and they'd start pointing at different things. You want this, you want this, you want this. Like, no, I don't want to eat that. And you did that at every restaurant you walked by. As you walked through the marketplace, they would shove goods in front of your face. It's like, you want this? I'm like, I don't want that. 20 lira. I said, I don't want it. Okay, 10 lira. No, I don't want it. Five lira. Like, dude, listen, I don't. Look, do I look like I need a bra? I don't need that. Please get that out of my face. And then he goes, you have girlfriend? No, I have no girlfriend. You have mother? That's weird. Don't even go there, okay? That is, it's a weird thing. But I noticed that people were picking me out because I stood out in the crowd. And I would hear this as I walked by these marketplaces. Hey, cowboy! Hey, cowboy! And then it, the ones that did talk to me, they go, uh, you from Texas? No, I'm from Arkansas. How close to Arkansas to Texas? It's not the same thing. Just trust me. But, but I stood out. And the reason that I stood out is because I took my culture into a foreign culture, and it caused me to be different and to stand out. Did you know, that's what, that's what Christ calls us to be. Not weird, not weird Christians, but we're supposed to stand out. Because as we take our lives and our culture and what God has instructed us to do, and we walk into the culture around us, which, by the way, is not godly, it's not even close to godly, we should stand out. We should catch people's attention with our differences. In Turkey, I looked funny. In this world, with what the norms of this world are, we should look funny. We've been in a sermon series called Shine Bright. And basically, what Jesus has called us to do is stand out in the world. By the way, do you know what the word holy means? 
When we say that we, we are being holy or that we are holy, it simply means that we are set apart. We should be different. We should stand out in this culture around us. Now, Peter, in, this, in his book here, in his epistle that we're going to be reading, Peter is going to bring in this teaching of standing out, and he's going to talk about it like traveling to a foreign land, being somebody from one place who goes to another. If you've got your Bibles with you, let's read verses 11 and 12. Peter speaking here, he says, Dearly beloved, I beseech you as a stranger and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. Keep your Bibles open. We're going to come back to that. Peter begins here, and he addresses believers. He addresses you and me, and he says, Okay, listen, as you go into the world, you should be strangers and pilgrims. That word strangers to us means somebody that I don't know. The word in other translations, translations is translated sojourner. The concept of this is that this is a temporary immigrant. This is somebody who goes to another country, they live there and make their life there, but they aren't from there. So Peter, you and me says, look, as you go out into the world, you live in this world because you have to, but you are not from here. He then goes on, he says, pilgrims, which are, are people who move to a place for a religious reason. This revolutionizes the way that I view the world around me. This world is not our home. We are here temporarily. This is a very short time in eternity. We have such a short view because the normal lifespan in America is somewhere between 80 and 90 years old. If you're really lucky and really blessed, you might make it over 100. It's such a short time in the span of, of, of eternity. And we're here for a short time. But our existence goes on forever and ever and ever. So this is not our home. We are just here as a visitor. Our first take home truth is the world is not our home. We are just visiting. Now, we could make a conversation about how many Christians and believers of Christ, we get too comfortable in the world, acting like the world. But I want to focus instead on where should we be? If this world that I grew up in, this world that I was raised in, this world that I was literally born into is not my home, where is my home? Well, as Jesus came into the world and, and John the Baptist before him, they, they would always say this. Would Jesus walk into the world, they would say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And the kingdom of heaven is spattered all throughout the teachings of Jesus Christ. Simply put, the kingdom of heaven is anywhere and everywhere in which Jesus rules as the king and the ultimate authority. It's not a physical kingdom, it's a spiritual kingdom. And when we become a follower of Christ, when we are saved, what we basically say is Jesus is the Lord of my life, he is the king of kings, I owe my allegiance to him, he is the ultimate authority, and therefore we are part of that kingdom. See, our home is not the physical world that we live in. Our home is a spiritual kingdom that will exist for all of eternity because we worship the king. And we have our heart in that kingdom as we go into the world. And this begins to change us. If your heart is in the kingdom of God, it will change your actions. As you study God's word, your beliefs will be different than the rest of the world. Your values will begin to change. What you find as important or unimportant begin to change. And then we go out into the world with this difference of culture being from the kingdom of God and we shine bright and we stand out. 
I have a close friend named Matt, and, and uh, Matt was born and raised in Arkansas, but his dad is from Nebraska, and all of Matt's family is from Nebraska. And they are really obnoxious college football fans. I don't know anybody like that myself. But they're really obnoxious college football fans. And specifically, because they're from Nebraska, they are Nebraska Cornhuskers fans. You thought it was backwoods to be an Arkansas Razorback? Cornhuskers is their it's a mascot down there. And when I say that he is obnoxious, I mean like he's got the license plate on his truck. He, he's got the shirt, you know, Nebraska Cornhuskers. He has a flag on a flagpole flying behind his house. And he lets everybody know, I am not a Razorback. I am a Nebraska Cornhusker. If you live within a three-block radius of this man when there is a football game on, you will know he is a Cornhusker, let me tell you. We pray for the people that live around him. I have friends who aren't Christians that pray for the people that live around him because he's so loud and obnoxious. But he lives in Fayetteville, Arkansas, right in the middle of the land of Razorback. While he's physically in Razorback land, his heart is in Nebraska, and he represents that. As Christians, listen, we live in this physical world, but our Father has his own kingdom. Physically, we are here, but in our hearts, we live in the kingdom of God, in the kingdom of heaven, and that should be visible in our life. So just like a visitor to a foreign country, we're not supposed to fit in. We don't need to fit in here. And Peter explains exactly what he means by that. And he goes forward and he says, as pilgrims, as strangers, abstain from fleshly lust. So your second take on truth is don't give in to the foreign culture of sin. When you see the word flesh in the Bible, it always comes back to one of two things. The Bible will often use flesh to talk about our physical bodies, our physical flesh. But, but most of the time when the Bible talks about the flesh, it's talking about that deep sin nature within us. That, that little desire, that little push to do all the things that are opposed to God. It's, it's that desire to verbally attack somebody when I'm angry. It's that deep push in me to be physically intimate with people outside of marriage. It's that, that thing that just tells me that money, money would make me happy. I've got a little bit of money I need to stockpile. I need a little bit more. If I could just get a little bit more money, I would be happy. It's that part of us that tells us that we categorize people as important and unimportant and we treat them differently. It's the part of me that says if I, can, if I can drink or smoke my problems away, that life will be better. It's the part of me that says I am the most important thing in this world. Here's what Peter says about that. All of those fleshly lusts, he simply puts it this way, don't. Don't do that. As strangers and pilgrims in this world, don't get caught up in the culture of this world that tells you that those are, things are okay. This is not your kingdom. And he gives us two reasons. Um, this is your third take-home truth here. It says, we fight against our, flesh, our, fle our own fleshly lusts because, point A, they wage war against our soul. That's verse 11. Peter says this, these things that the world tells you to do, that culturally are acceptable to everybody that you know who's not a Christian, that you see on television, that you hear in songs, that we are entertained by. Peter says these things are not only wrong, they're fleshly lusts. He says they will wage war on your soul. That language has this concept of, of invading your soul, of bringing the war to you. In America, we've been very blessed. Within, within this room, there's a few people who have seen America attacked in a warlike fashion. And even that was a long way away. And two instances in anybody in here's lifetime that America has had war on our own territory. Number one is Pearl Harbor in 1941. And even that was on an island in the middle of the Pacific. It's just land that we owned. Number two was 9-11 when terrorists hijacked planes and flew them into buildings across our country. For most of us, we've never experienced war and what it's like to have war waged upon us at home. 
But what war is, is, is war comes to you and it brings about destruction. John Abbott said this. He said, war is the science of destruction. And we can see that. I've got some pictures coming up. We can see that right now in Russia and Ukraine and the war that they have going on. A little over a year ago, I think it's been about 14 or 15 months ago, Russia invaded Ukraine with the concept of we're going to take this place over in three to seven days. It's now been over a year that this war has been going on. As you can see by the pictures that are going to kind of scroll behind me, the, the, the amount of destruction within Ukraine as Russia has waged war on it is huge. Forgetting the military casualties, 8,000 civilians have lost their life as Russia waged war on Ukraine. 218 hospitals have been destroyed or, or at least damaged. 12 million people are displaced or homeless. 14,000 children have been kidnapped to be sent to Russia to be brainwashed. There's evidence of torture and mass graves. This is a picture of what it means when you wage war on somebody. This is the example Peter chooses to talk about fleshly lust and what they do to your soul. That means that this world is going to tell us, hey, make money. Money will make you happy. But what Peter would say is chasing money and worshiping money, that's going to create destruction within your soul. Our world would tell us if you had a bad weekend, you went through a bad breakup, you know what you need to do, get some money, load up and go to Vegas. You can go drink and you can gamble and you can go to strip club after that and that's going to make you happy. But Peter said you are getting your own destruction. You are walking into your own destruction. As, as we, as Christians, go into the world, we should be an example of what it's like to live free of that, not just the actions, but to give a picture of freedom from the consequences of the sin. So the Bible says this, the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. That means what you earn, what you and I earn when we sin is death. And we know that to mean eternal death, hell, separation from God. We know that to mean physical death. We only die because Adam and Eve chose to sin against God. We were going to live forever, but we brought physical death upon us. But I've come to see this in the world, is the more that we sin, the more that we turn from God, we bring death of everything into our lives. We bring the death of our relationships through sin. We bring the death of our happiness through sin. Any measurable success we bring into our lives through sin. See, sin will steal everything from us. I, I like to say this. I like to say I grew up as a Pharisee, and I'm a recovering Pharisee, and I am. Because I grew up with the rules. This is church. This is what we do. This is what we don't do. This is how we handle that. And that was my religion for so much of my life. But as I, I've grown closer to God and I understand Him more, I realize every sin He calls us away from, He's protecting us from. And he's protecting us from the consequences of that. And then we get to live that life and we get to go out into the world and show the world a picture of what it looks like when, when, when we avoid those consequences. Our next take-home truth is we fight against our own fleshly lust because we represent God's goodness. Peter goes on to say that you resist those lusts, you abstain from those lusts. He says that you will have your conversation honest among the Gentiles. I like the way the New King James Persian puts that. It says having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles. That is the shine bright concept. As we walk away from sin, it sets us apart. And people in the world that chase sin and chase their fleshly lusts, they then get to look at us and go, why aren't you experiencing the same problems that I am? Why aren't these same consequences hitting and hurting you? What's different about you? And that's our opportunity to say, well, it's my Savior. He's given me freedom from that. He's changed me. 
2016, I believe it was, Arkansas and Texas played for the first time in a long time. I have another friend, as you can tell, I make really good friends. One's a Cornhusker fan, the other one's a Texas Longhorn fan. And so when this come around, I thought it'd be a cupcake game for us, but we all got together and we were going to watch this football game together. So me and several of my friends, uh, Jessica was there, all of their wives were there. We, we met to watch this at a restaurant. And as we were sitting there, not anybody that I knew, but friends of my friends sat down at the table with us. And I could tell immediately, I don't like these people. I, I like my friends. I like y'all, most of you. But I don't like these random people coming up. And, and, and I'm at a point right now, guys, where I'll tell you stories from my life without being embarrassed. There's some things I wish I hadn't done. I'm going to go ahead and tell you where I was. Th these guys sit down beside me. And the one sits down right next to me. And he orders a double shot of whiskey on return every 10 minutes. I'm no mathematician and I've never drunk, but over a course of a football game, that is a lot of alcohol. As we were getting towards the end of this, they'd already asked me and had a conversation with one of them. He was kind of trying to start a fight with me. He'd asked me why I wasn't drinking. And I told him, as a follower of Christ, you know, I don't do that. And, and this other guy sat beside me and we kind of got, as, as the night went on, I came to realize this guy behind me who now could not talk and could barely stand had driven himself here. And so I began to look at the people that actually knew him. It's like, which one of you guys are taking him home? And they're all like, we're out, we're leaving. So I can't let this guy drive. He's going to kill himself or worse, kill somebody else. And so I, I told a lie. I said, hey, man, I forgot my phone. Can I borrow yours and go outside and make a phone call? And he said, yeah, he handed me his phone. And I started going through his contacts. And I called his wife, and she didn't answer. And I called his mom, and she didn't answer. And I called his dad, and he didn't answer. And I called everybody I could think of, and nobody would answer. And so when the night was over, everybody gets up, and they start to leave. And they start to leave him, and he's like, I'm going to drive. I'm like, you're not driving. I'm going to drive you home. I don't even know you, but I'm going to drive you home. And as we get into his truck, he gets in the passenger seat of his truck. Let me say this uh, delicately. His body began to reject some of that alcohol. That was pleasant. And as I drove him home, he began to talk. And he was telling me about his life. He said, my wife has left me, which is why she didn't answer the phone when I called her. I have a one-year-old son, and I can't see him anymore. I'm sleeping on the couch at my parents' house, and they're about done with me. And then he begins to cry. He says, I wish I was more like you. I said, I'm nobody. You don't wish you were more like me. You wish you had what I have. You wish that you knew Jesus Christ. You wish that you followed him because what you're experiencing is the fleshly desires waging war on your soul. See, here's what this world will advertise to you, and this is just one topic out of thousands. The commercials will show that party with beautiful women and handsome guys, and they're having a great time and they're enjoying yourself. It doesn't show you the picture of the guy sitting in the passenger seat of his own truck, covered in vomit, crying because of the decisions that he's made. See, that's what the world does, is it gives you a picture of what it, you could have, and then it steals everything from you. And then we as Christians, we get to walk into that, not judgmentally, not telling people we're better than you. We get to walk into the culture and say, I know a better way. I, I know a way to, to move away from that. I know a way that you can restore your family. I know a way that you can praise God. I know a way that you can find happiness. And it comes through Jesus Christ and choosing to follow him and understanding him. See, see, we represent the best of the kingdom of God to the world. Most people will never see God if they don't see it in you. See him in you. Because they're not going to show up to church on Sunday morning just out of curiosity. They're going to show up to church because they knew a follower of Christ and they were hungry for what a follower of Christ had. 
I need you guys to imagine something with me. This will be good over here for our future teachers. Imagine this. 30 kids... They're not yours, but you're tasked with being responsible for them. You have to transport them safely to a place, keep them safe while they're there, feed them while they're there, transport them safely back to a place. Welcome to the life of a teacher on field trip day. It's very stressful. Quadruple checks. You call names. Everybody have their partner. Nobody goes along. Here's what happens when I take these kids on a field trip. We'll, we'll, we'll pull in somewhere on a bus, and, and I'll stand up at the front of the bus. They'll all be standing up and be like, no, sit down. Listen, while you are here, you represent your school, and you represent me. At the end of the day, these people aren't going to know your name. If you go here and, here and act like a hooligan, they're not going to know their na your name. But they're going to know that you came from Concord, and considering I'm the only person they do know my name, they're going to relate you with me. Represent me and your school well. Act accordingly. Basically, anything you would normally do, don't do those things. Because you don't want to, uh, you don't want to give a bad name to your school. The same thing is true of us as followers of Christ. At the end of the time, at the end of time, there won't be a lot of people that know your name. But they're going to develop an opinion of the God who saved you based on how you and I live in this world. So act accordingly, show restraint. Basically, don't do anything you would regularly do. Because people are looking at us to give them an example of who Christ is. Peter goes on to give us some specific examples of some cultural norms to avoid. We're going to be in 1 Peter for the next couple of weeks looking over these. Read with me verses 13 through 17 as he addresses one of these things. Peter says, Submit yourself to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme or unto governors, and unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of them that do well. For so is the will of God, that with well-doing you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men, as free and not using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness, but as the servants of God. Verse 17, listen to this. Honor all men, love the brotherhood, Fear God, honor the king. Your next take-home truth is submission to authority is a base principle of the kingdom of God. Submission to authority is a base principle of the kingdom of God. When God created our world, he created an authority structure. And you see it in multiple places. You see it in parents and children. God gives authority to parents. You see it in relationships. You see it in government. And it all points to the ultimate authority of God. And so when it comes to the government, when it comes to law enforcement, when it, when it comes to rules and regulations and laws, God is very clear that these things are a tool that he has created to bring his will about on the earth. There's another place in the Bible that says when a, when a government uses capital punishment, they wield the authority of God as a punisher. And so with that in mind, with all of these things pointing to the ultimate authority of God, we are not challengers of authority as Christians. We are champions of it because we are champions of God's authority. And that should reflect how we view authority in our human institutions. That word submit there is hoop ot asso. I can't say it, so I had to say it really slow. And it's a military term. When the Bible says submit, it's a military term that they would order that troops be placed under certain commands and certain generals and lieutenants, and they would place those troops under command, and you would know who you had to follow. It was about ordering who had the authority. And so when the Bible says to us to submit to the kings and to the governors and to every ordinance of man, what it's telling us is arrange yourself under the authority of the leaders God has put in place. 
Now, the reason Peter mentioned this at this time is because this was against the cultural norms of the time. At this time, Peter is talking to people who lived within the Roman Empire, who, who were ruled by an emperor, who, who had all of these cultural things to, to rebel against their emperor. They would refuse to pay taxes because they didn't believe they should be colonists. They would revolt and try to overthrow the government. They would riot and they would rebel. Does that sound familiar to anybody? And what Peter is doing is he's challenging that norm. He said, that is the culture of the world out there. But as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, that's not our culture. We don't get involved in that. We submit to authority because all challenges to this authority ultimately stem back to a satanic fleshly lust to rebel. Your next take home truth is rebellion, is a rebellion against authority is a base principle of the kingdom of Satan. See, as humans, we have a rebellious nature. It's in us to want to push back against authority. That's this part of being a human being. That's why your kids and, and my daughter, I don't, she's gotten this thing where you'll tell her to do something. Hey, it's time to pick up toys. And she just runs. The speed of guns off. Because she doesn't want to. She doesn't want to be told what to do. It's, it's part of who we are to rebel against people. But that doesn't come from the good side of the kingdom of heaven. That comes from Satan himself. See, the first rebellion was Satan in heaven. And he looked at the power of God and he looked at the prestige of God and he said to himself, I want that. I don't want to submit to God. I want to be God. And at the end of this battle, Satan and one third of the angels in heaven were thrown out. That's where we get our demonic forces today. And they've continued this rebellion against God. Satan came to Eve in the Garden of Eden and he, and she, he said to her, you know, question the authority of God. He gave you an order. Should you really follow it? We see that throughout all of our, throughout all of our life that we constantly question authority of people and rules. In Revelation, it tells us that Satan is going to march with an army against God. And his kingdom is a kingdom that says there's no rules, there's no standard of authority. Just do what makes you feel good. But we are not normal. So how does this apply to us in the modern day? Because let's be honest, I think we could say that the norm of the Roman Empire is pretty close to what we have today in every aspect, but especially when it comes to authority. Because we're all tired of and we all get into the, you know, Republicans and the, the Demopublicans and all that. I think I said that was wrong. But anyway, the election system doesn't go our way and our culture says rebel, fight, get angry, riot. Just let this stuff take over your life. But what the kingdom of heaven says and what the Bible teaches us is that don't worry about those things. We've got to live our lives where we say, I don't worship a donkey. I don't worship an elephant. I worship the lamb. And that is the ultimate authority and the only authority that I'm worried about. And in doing so, what we do is we honor God's authority by honoring the other, others that he places in leadership. Uh, your next take-home truth number six says, we honor God's authority by honoring the authority of those he places in leadership. Now, I know you've got some questions about that. I have two at times. But what if, what if it's the other party? You know, the bad ones, those guys. What if I have some questions about the election? That seems to be very popular today. What if I have a question about how our leaders tend to lead us into sin? What if I don't agree with the decisions that are going to turn in the economy? What if these persons do nothing that I want them to do? I want to remind you of something real quick. Let's go back to earlier in the message. Peter said this. He said, fleshly lusts wage war on your very soul. 
We see that in the soul of America today with the anger and the frustration as we worship our political leaders. But secondly... Secondly, Scripture is trying to rescue us. You may have all of those questions, but Peter anticipated those questions. Peter understood the frustration and the questions and the hatred you and I might have about a government, whether it's the last president, the next president, the current president, the governor, the laws, the city mayor. It doesn't matter. Peter anticipated that. Because when Peter wrote this, when Peter wrote to honor the authority of kings and governors, the world was way worse than anything you and I could imagine. When Peter wrote this, the ultimate authority in that world was an emperor named Nero. Uh, Nero rose to power when his mom poisoned his adopted father so that she could put her son into power. Nero later murdered his mom by staging a shipwreck in which she would die. When she didn't die in the shipwreck, he ordered that she be executed and had it made to look like suicide. Sometime, sometime after that, he killed his first wife so that he could marry a male slave, which, by the way, he dressed as and took the role of the bride in that marriage. After that, he ended up murdering another wife by kicking her to death while she was pregnant and married a young boy out of, out of um, sadness about that and married another young boy that he thought resembled her. And when Rome burned and people looked at him as the emperor and said, this is your problem, you know who he blamed? He blamed us. He made Christians a scapegoat. And the largest persecution of Christians in history was done by this man. He literally lit his gardens by burning Christians alive. Not a one-time thing. This was an every-night thing. You wanted to walk in the garden? Oh, it's so pretty out here with the firelight. And it would be the bodies of dead Christians that he killed. And under these circumstances, Peter writes these words. He writes, Honor the king. Peter actually dies as a result later after writing this of Nero's persecution. And Peter takes us not to just be government, this concept of, of submitting to authority, and applies it in all areas. Let's keep reading verses 18 through 20. It says, Servants, be subject to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the forward. For this is thankworthy, if a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongly. For what glory is it if, when you be buffeted for your faults, ye shall take it patiently? But if, when you do well and suffer for it, ye take it patiently, this is acceptable for God. Peter's going to apply the same logic here to how we deal with work relationships, or this time this would have been servants and slaves and masters. And he's going to explain that we should be willing to submit to authority in all circumstances. And that's even good or bad. P Peter's point here is like, look, if you work for somebody good and they're a good master, you should submit to them. Everybody would expect you to. Even the most sinful people expect you to honor a boss who is a good boss. He said, oh, but when you have a, a bad master, a bad boss, a bad employer, someone who misuses you, mistreats you, and yells at you and cusses you, when you submit to them in that moment, that's when God is glorified. I was once told by somebody and being taught to be respectful, and said, Brian, uh, when you're respectful to people, that's not necessarily a reflection of who they are. You can be respectful to the CEO of the company and the janitor in the same way. When you're respectful to somebody, it's a reflection of who you are, not who they are. And it's the same thing for Christians and the way that we treat people and the way that, that we reflect God. When we choose to honor somebody's authority, we don't do it based on the merits of that leader. We do that based upon who we are. It doesn't matter if they deserve it. It's a reflection of our heart. And ultimately, it's a reflection of Jesus Christ's heart. 
Because what we want people to see when we leave here, at work, at school, wherever we at, we want people to see Jesus Christ in our heart. We want them to want Him and desire Him based upon our lives. Uh, Peter's going to continue on and he's going to give the example of Jesus Christ as someone who submitted to authority. Listen to this, verses 21 through 24. It says, But even hereunto you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, reviled not again, when he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to, that to him that judges rightfully, who is his own self, bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. Your last take-home truth, number seven. Your salvation was secured by Jesus' submission to authority. Jesus Christ did not have to submit to anybody. He was the King of kings. He was the Lord of lords. He was the Messiah. He was God himself. He created us. But when he came here as a man, he submitted himself to the courts and to the punishments of the courts. They grabbed Jesus and wrongly accused him. They beat him harshly. They lied about him. They treated him horribly. And he took it all silently. And eventually, they killed him. And he submitted to the death penalty. Why did he do that? Because his ultimate mission was not to reform the government. His ultimate mission wasn't to come and say, I'll do what I want. His ultimate mission was to pursue you. And through his pursuit of you, it had to take him through that level of submission to death, to die for my sins and for your sins. That's why Jesus did that. As a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, as a follower of Christ, our goal is not to go out in the world and do what we want to do. Our goal is not to go out into the world and talk about how we're right and everybody else is wrong. Our goal is to pursue people to Jesus Christ. Live if you want to come up here. So this morning, I just want to ask us as a church, I want nothing more than for us to see people come to Him. Oh, we, we read in uh, Acts chapter 20 this morning in Sunday school, the, the, the lesson had to do with um, an idol maker in one of the cities. And they were mad at Paul. You know why? Because Paul converted so many people to Christ that the idol maker couldn't find anybody to buy his false gods. And he hated Paul because of that. That's who we're supposed to be. And that should be the heart of us as followers of Christ. That should be the heart of Ramsey Heights. We want to go attack the culture with Jesus Christ and see people come to him. But it's going to take work on our part to reflect Him. Nobody wants to hear about Jesus Christ from your mouth until they see Him in your actions. And it means we're going to have to live in this world as strangers and pilgrims. Not taking on every cultural norm, but pushing it back against the cultural norms. So here's my questions for you this morning. Number one, before you can represent Jesus Christ, you must know Him. And there's some people sitting in this room, and you know it's time. You know you need to give your life to Christ. Don't resist him. He loves you so much that he died for you. And what he's going to give you is better than anything you could ever have without him, both in this life and the next. If you don't know him as your Savior, today is a day for you to come and accept him. For the rest of us who have already been there, let's represent him. And if there's something in your life today that you can say, I've not been representing my Savior, I've not been representing the kingdom of heaven well, I just encourage you to come up here and lay that at the altar and say, that's enough. Because I want, I want people to see Him in me. Let's stand and worship together.